Hey there, welcome to Board Game Hot Takes, the podcast where we give our immediate reactions to the hottest board games just minutes after playing them. My name's Tim. This is Adam. And I'm Jen. And we're going to give our hot takes on the game that we just finished playing, Whistle Mountain. Before Tim gets in to a description of the game, we are trying to gain some notoriety. So you can join the conversation at uh, Twitter at BG underscore hot takes or on Facebook at Board Game Hot Takes for the latest conversations about the games we're playing. If you wouldn't mind, give us a nice rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us to help more people find the show. Thanks, Adam. So let's jump into the game now, Tim. What do you got for us? In Whistle Mountain, players will use their airship fleet to jointly build a massive contraption out of scaffolding and machines in the Rocky Mountains. But as the contraption gets larger, it causes the snow to melt and rising floodwaters may put your workers at risk. So you'll want to rescue them from the floodwaters and put them to work at the highest levels of the contraption while building up the most valuable machines in order to win. On your turn, you'll usually take a gather action by sending one of your three airships out to one of the ports around the edge of the game board and taking the related actions, which include trading resources for machines, upgrades, cards, or scaffolding, or by placing the airship on the central board to collect resources. When you place the airship on the central board, you can either place it in an open space next to scaffolding and collecting any resources that are printed on the scaffolding adjacent to your ship, or you can place it on a machine, both activating the machine as well as collecting resources on the scaffolding next to that machine. Your three airships are different sizes, so when placing them on the board, the size of the airship will dictate if they fit in open spaces as well as how many resources they may collect due to adjacency. When all of your airships have been placed on the board, you'll take a forge action, which will allow you to pull back all of your airships and then build between one to three scaffolding pieces or machines on the central board, as well as place one of your workers on an open piece of scaffolding. When you place scaffolding on the main board, it can be placed in any open space on the board adjacent to existing scaffolding, and you'll gain a point for each segment of your scaffolding piece that is adjacent to an existing scaffolding or machine. When you build a machine on the board, it has to fit fully onto existing scaffolding pieces, and if it covers any workers, those workers will be moved to the side of the board where they will be worth endgame points based on how high up in the contraption they were. When a machine is built above a particular segment on the board, the flood levels rise and any, an entire segment of the main board and contraption are covered with water. If there are any workers on scaffolding where this water is placed, they'll be pushed into the flood whirlpool be- below and will be worth negative points if they aren't rescued before the end of the game. Any machines that are covered by this water will no longer function. Once the flood levels rise to a certain level of the board, the game ends and players will score additional endgame points for workers that worked on machines and unused resources, and will lose points for workers who are not rescued from the floodwaters. And the player with the most points is the winner. So let's get into the conversation. Let's start with the mechanisms. And Jen, I want to start with you. Any mechanisms that really stood out to you in this game? For me, I think the fact that there was so many mechanisms stands out to me about this game. I mean, we have tiling, worker placement, resource management, victory points, structure building like you guys tell me if i'm using the right words right so you're nailing it you're nailing it jen you got them all right yep (laughs) three episodes and i'm like an expert (laughs) when you put that all together it's it's a pretty complex game for me so the what stood out to me was that there was just a lot going on and my brain had it took some time to get used to of figuring out that I had to think about almost all those things every single turn. There, there were a lot of mechanisms, Jen, you're right. And your brain did a better job of it than mine because you beat me. In a distant second, that is. <laughs> we don't have to talk about that. <laughs> the mechanism I like that stood out to me in this game is you're building these little engines, I guess is what you call them, on the scaffolding that's out there. And then you can put your airship in such a way, so you're kind of placing your airship or hot air balloon or... I think there's there's three sizes, right? There's a hot air balloon is the smallest one. The middle one, I don't know if it's like a, a blimp. It's a blimp. Maybe the biggest one. Yeah. The biggest one's like an airship or a Zeppelin. Nope. It's a dreadnought. Oh, a dreadnought. How about that? So so the hot air balloon takes up one square. The middle one, whatever it's called, takes up two squares. And the dreadnought takes up a length or width of three squares, depending on how you want to orient it. It's pretty fun. You can put these out there on the scaffolding or adjacent to the scaffolding and these engines, and you get to reap the benefits of being close to that. So that's one way to collect points or resources or whatever's out there on these engines. So that little puzzle was was pretty cool. And that's the one, the one thing I want to start with and get your guys' reactions on. Okay. So let me step back a second, and I want to, to kind of come back to where that the engines fall into the game. So the game is a pretty standard worker placement game in general, right? You've got these three pieces, 
think of them, your three workers, and you put them out of the board and they do an action. So you've seen that in a billion other worker placement games. And when you, the first couple of rounds of the game, it feels just like a traditional worker placement. You're either putting them in the middle board to get resources, or you're putting them on the edge of the board to turn those resources into some of the things you're going to be using later in the game to build, right? Pretty straightforward. Doesn't seem very complex. Decisions aren't that big. The resources you can get at the beginning of the game when you place your ship next to it, there's usually one best choice on the, on the game in the first couple of turns. Pretty simple. Going back to what Adam just said, where it really gets interesting, you know, by maybe the fourth or fifth round, you've started to build a couple of these little engines out on the board. The cool thing is then is that you place your airship on one of the engines, you activate the engine, and the engine might give you a couple of resources or it might let you convert a resource into something bigger or do some other crazy action. But then you also get to activate the spaces that are adjacent to your airship. So you'll get the resources that are on the scaffolding adjacent to it. But then it even gets more interesting once you get a two machines next to each other, you're triggering the machine, you're getting the resources from the scaffolding, and you're triggering another machine. By the end of the game, you can take an action where you're getting like five or six things happening on the board uh, just with your one airship placement. And it's it gets super fun then. And it gets it gets really fun to you know, try to optimize that and, you know, get the resources that you really need and try to get as many engines happening as you want, but also trying to block other people. Cause Hey, if I put my three ship here, even though I only get the same benefit as I would, if I put my two size ship there, I can block Jen from putting her one size ship there. And so it's, it's pretty neat. The decision space gets really interesting towards the end of the game. So I just to add on to what Adam said there, that those machines are very cool. Once they start triggering, you know, they, they kind of take off and the game really really picks up towards the middle game. There's a tremendous sense of emergence is the word that keeps coming to my head. So, you know, the first round, like you said, is just kind of ho-hum, not too much going on, but then it just kind of explodes with the amount of options and resources and stuff you're gathering and options that are available to you. So I like that, that emergence that comes with this game. Yeah. And, um, and, and how that appears here is that, like I said, it starts out as a very simple worker placement game. Um, When I, teach the rules. It was a pretty quick teach, to be honest. Like Adam had never even read the rules or anything. It took me maybe 10 minutes to get through it with a couple of questions and stuff in there. The the only thing that, you know, that you have to spend a little time on in the rules is kind of explaining how the forge action works and, you know, the way you can place your scaffolding and where the way you, the kind of the rules you have to follow for the, the, the tile placement piece of the game, you know, placing the scaffolding, which are little polyomino tiles. So they come in a few different shapes. They look like little Tetris tiles. Um, so you kind of have to just, you know, explain what happens, where can you place them? Um, and then when you place engines, they have to fit all within those tiles. So, so there's some little bit of complexity in the rules for placing those. But other than that, the basic rules of the game are not that complex. Where Jen said it felt like there's a lot of stuff stacked on top of each other, I think really comes, uh, Jen, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it mostly comes from those rules and all the the, the decisions that come out of pulling back your workers and doing that forge action. Would you agree? Or do you think that there actually is, you know, a lot of complexity for you in even the, the, the airship placement action itself? Well, it's your, if you're competing with all the things that you want to do, you want to, to build the machines and you want to build your scaffolding and you want to get the points that come along with that. And you want to upgrade your airships and all those things. And so it's, it's a big risk reward and resource management. When you look at that, I, I think there is a complexity to it. Once you get moving, it all becomes a lot clearer. Like when the emergence, as, as Adam used that word, it really does become clearer as to maybe the direction the game is going. Because I think what is unique about this is that I think there will be a really, really, well, unique game no matter how many times you play. Because it totally depends on each individual's choices to such an extreme. And so I just, I see that, that this game would just be fun over and over again in that way. Yeah, I love that. And so replayability is great when the players are kind of creating that replayability because the decisions they make. And I think there's a lot of space here to do that, but this game actually offers replayability in spades um, also in the variety of things that are going to happen during any given game. So let's talk about that really quickly. Starting setting up the game, every player gets to draft a, 
player, uh, you know, basically like a player bonus. And I think there's like, I don't know, 12 to 15 of them in the box, something like that. So in a three player game tonight, we only saw four of them and we each got one of those to start with. It's a, a an ongoing ability that each player gets. Well, that's going to be completely different every game because it's going to be completely different tiles you draft. The starting locations, everybody gets to put one of the scaffolding out on the board. And, and that so that starting even where the game starts with the scaffolding is going to change every game. But then you have different engines, small, medium, and large engines are going to show up every game because you're not going to see all of them. Each one of those is unique. You're going to get different scaffolding tiles with different resources showing up. Sometimes there's going to be scarcity of some type of resources and plenty of others. And then the cards that you can draw from the deck is just a massive uh, 40 different cards that seem to be completely different and the abilities you can do with them. Plus the awards that line up in the um, in the, the side scaffolding where your workers go to, those are all set up in a random order every time. So the the replayability in here is just cool. I mean, and and Jen, I think that setting all that up is great, but you can have a game that feels the same, even if it sets up differently every time. But like you said, the choices that players are making and where they're going to build engines and where they're going to place their workers, every turn changes what's available to you to do. And that's pretty cool. In a worker placement game, actually, this is something that's really unique. I don't think I've ever seen before. You know, the docks on the edges, they don't change. But the worker options in the middle of the board, when that de- as that develops, is completely unique. Uh, have you guys seen anything like this? I, I I don't think I have in any worker placement game. I can't recall anything. I guess it's almost you know as if you're flying and a weather pattern emerges and you have to deviate around that, or do you decide to go through it? Or I'm trying to make some horrible analogy about airships and the choices <laughs> that, that evolve. Adam, Adam, you're a pilot. <laughs> I wasn't going to say it, but since you said it, yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, a couple of games that come to mind are things like Kalis or uh, Lords of Waterdeep, where there are opportunities to build new work replacement spaces on the board. Um, but this does it in a completely unique way because you're not building just, you know, single spaces people can put out. You're building complete options uh, and, and so many ways for them to use those options that I just can't think of another game that's done it quite this this way. So the one thing I do like that reminds me when you said Lords of Waterdeep was the the engines, I guess. Is that what they're called? The little, you know, yeah. the... Okay. Yeah, they're engines. So the engines that you can buy. And so like Lords of Waterdeep has those, once you gather the resources required to pay for that, you get to collect it and you get however many points. Anyway, there's a similar, for these engines, you buy them and then you pay to play them out there on the board and you get immediate points. But those engines are available to everybody after that so you kind of have to strategically place them where they're going to benefit you the most then other players have a chance to use this resource that just gets placed out there that you typically won't have the chance to use before everybody else gets to use it first so i really like that mechanism as well jen i want to add on to that but did you have anything else to say about the engines no i thought the placement of it was neat because you could kind of predict where people were going to place their engines based on where they were placing their People? What are we calling them? They're workers. Yeah, workers. Yeah. Yeah, they're workers. Mm. I could kind of look around and be like, oh, well, I'm just going to put a worker there for right now because I'm pretty sure that Adam's going to go ahead and put a machine on there for me. So thanks, Adam. I mean, you can ride the coattails in that sense uh, and, and get a couple extra points that way. It's not a long term strategy, but it did give me a couple points and it probably eked out that second place victory that I got. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, the, the the workers are a really interesting little, uh, I don't know that the game needed it, right? I mean, it could have just been a thing where you're building out, work, you know, the worker placement spots and then going out there and getting resources, running the engine. But the workers actually drive some really interesting decisions because, you know, they're not traditional workers in a worker placement game. In this game, your blimps or your airships are the actual workers in the game that you're sending out to the board to do stuff. But you've got these little line of meeples that are kind of lined up in the barracks, and there's a couple of them down in the whirlpool at the bottom of the pool. And you have opportunities during the game to kind of put them out into spaces out on the, what do you call the scaffolding. But they don't do anything when you first place them there. The, The way you get a benefit from them is when somebody builds an engine on top of those meeples. So it's like, yeah, those workers helped you build the engine. That's what they did. And then those workers, they go into retirement. They go over to the side of the board and they're worth points at the end of the game. But then there's a cool little thing where the first meeple that goes over to the right side in a specific set of rows gets an extra award for it, which is like an extra bonus action. Getting those workers out there. I mean, that's really where most of my points came from tonight, right? I got like 48 points out of my 143 point game just by getting workers in that scaffolding over to the side of the game. So it was about setting myself up, getting workers out there, and then throwing an engine on top of it. 
and and being the one that placed the engine to the highest level so that my worker got over to the award first. And you guys might get to ride my coattails a little bit, but you know, I got the first bonus and I might get to optimize that bonus. So uh, that added a really interesting decision space. And I have to know that part where you kept saying that the workers were retiring, was that in the instructions or was just a fun storyline that you made up on your own? No, I think it's actually, I think the term they use is that they're being promoted okay. when they move off to the side of the board, like they're foreman then, and they're watching over from the side and instructing the rest of the people what to do. I think that's what the the rule, what the, you know, theme is supposed to be here. I like it. The rule book promoted them and you retired them. <laughs> I, I liked, I like the idea of retirement. They, they, that was a dangerous job. They could have fallen in the whirlpool and died. And so I think they deserve retirement. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's just an interesting, there's a lot more decision space here than I expected after reading the rules, because again, I learned this from just reading the rule book and it was pretty straightforward and I felt I knew how to teach it just, you know, a 30 minute read and I taught it pretty straightforward. I had to go reference the rule, a couple, the rule book a couple of times, had to reference it a lot for the iconography and for all the, you know, what the machines do and what the awards do and stuff like that. So that, that that's good. There's a good player reference. We'll get into that in a minute, but the rules are pretty simple, but there's a lot of interesting decisions to make there more than I expected when I first started playing. Agreed. Yeah. The rules weren't bad at all for a guy who came in pretty much blind after a little 10 minute brief, (laughs) it was easy to pick up, you know, not necessarily easy to be good at. Jin has this need to be the smartest in the room. Like pretty soon that's going to be her doom. (laughs) Yeah. Second smartest in the room in this case, but yeah, I got the Hamilton reference there. Thanks. Yeah, no problem. (laughs) <laughs> I was going to say something clever, but no, the, the rules were pretty simple. And then it, like I said, that emerging gameplay spawns from those rules, which is cool. Yeah. Jen, any other uh, mechanisms you want to talk about? No, I, I, he stole my thunder. Let's be real about the Hamilton reference, but I will forgive him <laughs> one day. <laughs> I want to talk about the, um, the little plugins. So your player board is, is right there in front of you without going into production too much. You can buy these upgrades, if you will, to whatever your player board is supposed to be. So there's this engine building aspect of the game too. So that's a nice mechanism, whether it's turning one of the resources into a wild resource. So increasing the value of a certain resource, or I forget what some of the other little cogs were that you can put in your machine. Yeah. For example, one of them would give you a point every time you used an engine or gems. um, Basically, normally the workers that are in the whirlpool at the end of the game are worth negative five points and hers canceled that out. So yeah, they all give you kind of little different bonuses that happen. So again, it gives you so many options to, to, you know, kind of blow with the wind. And do you want to go this route? Do you want to go this route? There's lots of options uh, for this game. And I did not find any of them. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. And that was, that was another thing I didn't mention in the variability is that there are a lot of little upgrades you can get. So aside from your starting player power, you can purchase upgrades in the game and those can really change your abilities and your powers throughout the game. We didn't actually see that many in this game. I, I would think that you probably would use them more normally. I didn't have a single upgrade. You guys each had one, you know, one each at the end of the game, but there's slots for six of them in your airship. So I could think that you could really get some super efficiencies if you managed to pull a couple of those you know, a few more of those off in a game. Agree. I got the sense that this was kind of a, almost a race game too, where you're kind of pushing, you can kind of push the tempo of the game and kind of leave people in the dust. If there was a couple of times early where Tim got to build those engines above the bridge level and washed a couple of our dudes into the, the little whirlpool or whatever it's called down there. So I was kind of trying to chase from behind, get my dudes out of there. Cause that's a negative five points. Whereas getting them to the side is at least a positive five points. So it could be like a 10 point swing. If I leave my dude drown in the whirlpool down there. Yeah. Yeah. And that's actually one of the kind of neat mechanisms that happens here too. They could have handled the, the end game in a lot of different ways here, but the way that the, the board develops. So not only are you building up on this board and kind of adding scaffolding and adding engines <clears throat> that gives more worker placement spots, but then it's actually eliminating worker placement spots as the game evolves, because basically what happens is every time you build up an engine, as I mentioned, as, as you build an engine above a certain place on the board, you take a whole strip of water resource, this little cardboard strip that just covers over a whole row of the board. Which So it changes things. It shuts down certain engines. And if there are workers down there, then they go into the wash. So you got to kind of, you know, carefully, when you place those early workers, do you place them in a place where they could get washed down later on? Or if you don't get enough workers out of the, out of the barracks from the side, they'll get sent to the to the wash as the water starts to rise. So the water leveling rising is just another kind of cool little mechanism that's not super complicated, adds another light level to the game or another layer that um, I thought was fun to try to get ahead of and, you know, optimize around it. Anything else, Adam? Not for me. 
Okay. Well, as always, I have a ton to say. So I'm just going to talk about one more mechanism really quickly. And that is, I just want to point out that um, Luke Laurie uh, is kind of known. This is his third kind of big box release design. And he's his other two designs that I'm familiar with are also worker placement, worker placement games. But what he's kind of, uh, I, I think, honed, I don't know if he's the one who created this idea. In a normal worker placement game, you're going to usually use it one of two ways. You're going to either you know, place all your workers. And then when everybody's done placing their workers, the round ends and you move to the next round. Or there's a lot of worker placement games where you place your workers and then you take an act, you take a turn pulling your workers back. I've, I've, I got introduced to that in some of Jamie Stegmeier's earlier games like uh, Euphoria and Charterstone are good examples. Maybe other games have done that. It's a clever idea, but it's always a little bit of a frustrating turn that that whole turn you have to spend just taking your workers back. You don't get to do anything. So what Luke Laurie did, I think in Energy Empire is the first game that he did this in, is the idea that when you pull your workers back, then you get some benefits for pulling them back. And he's also done it in Dwellings of Eldervale in a really interesting way. And they, they, he did the same thing here. So when you pull your workers back, that's your forge action. And that's when you actually get to build constructions and pull workers out. And so it actually makes the forge turn really fun. And sometimes a turn you want to rush to. You don't even want to place all your workers first. You want to be the first to you know get to do something. That's a really cool idea. I think it elevates worker placement in a way to, to kind of take that negative piece of worker placement and the, the downtime that comes from pulling everything back and turning it into actually a fun mechanism, fun turn. So I wanted to call that out because I think it, it works really well here. I agree, Tim. That's a very nice twist. Uh, that idea of giving up a little bit of action to call, recall your blimps and build some stuff. That, that was cool. That was really enjoyable. All right. Well, let's jump into the production of the game. So we didn't get to play with the game in person, which I think is going to be a real shame because this looks like a really cool production. But let's talk about what we do know about it. We played it on Tabletopia. One thing I want to say really quickly is that I really appreciate that publishers are starting to put their games out into these online platforms. Sometimes publishers are doing, sometimes fans are doing it in situations like Tabletop Simulator. But we got the opportunity a few weeks ago to play Jurassic or no Dinosaur World, for example, um, because the publisher put the game out on Tabletop Simulator before the Kickstarter even finished. And that was really awesome. Like, that's nice that they gave us a chance to actually play it before deciding whether we, it was the right game for us to back, right? So that was cool. Well, Bez, Bezier did a similar thing here in that they it, the release date is this week, and they've got it out on Tabletopia where people can go out and use it. And it's free. You don't even have to have a membership on Tabletopia to use it. So I think it's awesome that they're letting people get out there and play it and try the game before you decide, you know, make a decision to purchase it. Uh, so I just wanted to start there. That's the way we played. It was on Tabletopia. And I want to say to publishers, I'm probably going to buy this game now. So this is one of the things you get to do. If you've got a great product, put it out there, let people try it. And they'll, you know, you're, you're probably going to sell more because of it instead of saying like, well, if someone tries my game, maybe they won't buy it in a person. I don't think that's usually what happens. So just an example of, I want to just give some praise to the publisher here for putting it out there and making it accessible to us before we could get a chance to play in person. So that was really cool. So anyway, let's jump in now to the production that we have gotten a chance to experience. Adam, why don't we start with you this time? Uh, what uh, what stands out to you from a production perspective? So from the production perspective, I got some pictures up on BoardGameGeek to get a better sense of what the production might be like. And one of the things that was bugging me on Tabletopia was the the water strip, bringing that in. That was a little finicky on there. But on the production itself, first of all, overall, let me say the color scheme is fantastic. The art is cute. You got these kind of little cogs and gears. It's it's pseudo steampunk, not really, you know, hardcore steampunk, but then it just has a nice the map has like, or the board has a nice mountain landscape and some pine trees. So a really nice color palette that I like very much. And then the, um, the water as the water level goes up. So those are all kind of racked on a big peg at the bottom of the little grid. And as the water level goes up, there's a little small peg for each water level to slot into. So that won't slide around on you. Just the amount of, you know, the cardboard and the way it's organized, at least that piece of it is, is cool. Um, and that's, I'll stop right there and I'll let you guys get a, a word in Jen what uh, what stands out to you from a from a production perspective it's funny that Adam actually said that because when I went online to look at the pictures too because I wanted to see what we were playing with I noticed the little pegs as well because when we were playing with it like Tim had just taught me Tabletopia yesterday actually using this game and so we've been playing and stuff had been shifting around the the table but um seeing those little pegs on there I was like oh good because I can just imagine you know someone sneezing and like everything the water just going whoosh and the water doesn't need to rise up that fast. Yeah. You know, unique that we both saw that. 
I, I actually looked online as well, and we talked about this early on the game when we were playing. I love the fact that the uh, resources are not just like cubes, that they're um, like they're, you know, they have a little panache to them. Like the gold is actually glittery <laughs> and the steel is actually has a shine to it as well. And so um, I thought that was really neat. So I would want to see what that feels like when you're playing with it. I don't know. I just liked it. I thought that it was awesome. It looked neat. It, it, you know, Adam at the beginning of our conversation was like, oh, where is this? I feel like this looks like a bridge somewhere where I, I've been before, you know? And so just, it was really, it just felt like connectable. And then the storyline behind it really just kind of pulled it all together. The quality of the meeples is really nice. The different wood resources and the fact that they're even, you know, painted, like you said, that's, that's great. It's, it just looks like a really high quality production. I want to talk about the usability of the game a little bit. Um, first of all, the player boards are really great. It tells you exactly what you can do with your actions, especially the forge action, which gives you a couple options to play with, is very clearly spelled out on the board. And once you have been taught it, it it's a great reminder. In fact, like one of the rules tonight, after just reading the rule book, I had missed the player board kind of corrected. Like I didn't know you could do the the forge actions in different orders. I thought you had to build and then pull your workers or move your workers around. And Adam, you know, just had written on there in any order. And so we just double checked in the rule book. And so I love when a player aid or a, a player board kind of gives you everything you need to know. So um, it's great here, uh, but there is a lot of icons in the game. So I'll warn you about that. Now there's a great reference guide. The, the rule book um, has about 10 pages of reference it shows you what every small, large, and medium machine does. It shows you what every award does. It shows you what every card does. That's awesome, but you will have to reference it. So be aware of that if it bugs you that you're going to having to be checking the rule book, you know, to look things up. Uh, I don't see. It. I think you'd have to play quite a few games before you just knew what all these things did without looking at the without the the reference guide. It's no worse than like a Gaia project, I don't think. Or so maybe I would say two or three games. I think. So after playing it just the one time, I think the majority of the iconography I had down, there's just a few weird ones that didn't quite make sense to me. So aside from those kind of fringy, you know, 30% or so, one or two more games that have those down before you didn't need to reference the rulebook. I would compare this more to the Castles of Burgundy and the technology tiles in Castles of Burgundy, right? So yeah, after the first couple of games, you'll know the iconography for almost everything, but there's going to be some technology tiles you're not going to see in the first few games. And when they do come up, you will have to reference the rule book. And I think Fair enough, yeah. the same thing, the large machines especially seem particularly complex as far as what the iconography did. So probably with those um, is going to be the one place I would say most likely. Yep. Yeah, go ahead. Adam. I was just agreeing. Yeah. But I, I but again, the, the rule book has a fantastic reference in it. So it's not like you're ever going to have a hard time deciphering anything. Everything was very well spelled out. We looked it up. We knew exactly what it did. No questions after we looked at the rule book for it. So it's there, easy to reference. Um but you will have to reference it for a little while. And I actually felt like it was a little bit easier, believe it or not, than Castles of Burgundy or say the Artemis Project. Cause I've played both of those games much more than I've played this one, obviously. And I still have to look at the rule book or ask you what they mean. And this one, there were some of them were just intuitive. Yeah. That felt like a big deal that if you can get some of them on your own without even asking or looking, then that's working for me. Yeah, you should look at the very last page of the rule book, I think. I'm going to pull it up right here. But there is actually a page that just has um, every icon in the game reference. Yeah, it's page 20 in the rule book. And there is, it looks to me, about 60 icons on that page. Theoretically, if you just had that page, you could decipher probably everything else in the game that it has to offer. Still, 60 icons to you know get familiar with and recognize what they do. They are pretty intuitive. There's a lot there, though. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna hold my ground on that one. I, I do think that there's a lot to uh, to look at. That doesn't make it bad. I think that's what's gonna give it the variety and you know a lot of interesting things that could happen in a game. But um, but they are there. So to give a, maybe another hopefully helpful comparison, maybe not. But Fort. This kind of reminds me of Fort. So I don't know. Fort maybe has twelve to fifteen or so, somewhere in that neighborhood, less than twenty. Yeah. But it has that reference card right there and you can, you know, look at it right in front of you. That gives me that, this kind of feel to it as well. And you're right, this Tim, this does have a significantly more, but I think once you now you're right. Take a, a few games <laughs> to get them all down. Yeah. Now I don't know for sure if the if the physical game comes with any kind of player aids or if you do have to reference the rule book. I think it would be fantastic if they did come with a fort type of player aid that just had a lot of this stuff spelled out for you. I don't know if it does or not. So but I again, it's fine. I think it's okay. Adam, do you want to jump into something else? I guess it's okay. The scoring, so there's a lot of points going on in this game. And the, the way they track the scoring is with these stars. So you have big stars worth 50, 
middle stars are worth 10, a little bit smaller ones are worth five. And the numbers are all right on them. The smallest stars are worth one. So throughout the game, you're kind of changing up and down with these stars. There's no like point tracker around the edge of the board or there's not, I don't know. So that's one way to do it. And it's not okay. It's, I was just, that's a word I wasn't going to use. I was going to say it's okay in a very distasteful way. It's, I don't think it is. I think it's, I think it's the one big production decision that they've messed up in this game. I don't know why exactly. So, you know, it's possible that they were trying to keep scoring a little less visible, like in game scoring. For instance, if you've got a score tracker, you can kind of see where everybody is. I don't think these are supposed to be hidden resources, but I guess it gives a little bit of obscurity to how scoring is going if there's just a bunch of little stars all over somebody's side of the player board. I haven't checked that far into the rulebook to see if you could ask a player and say, how many points do you have? Or if that's kind of semi-hidden information. That's the only reason I can imagine why they use this mechanism. I don't think that's why they did. I think I know why they used it. That's the only reason they should have used it is if they wanted to obscure that a little bit. The reason I think they did it is because they put the docks on the outside of the of the game board, you know, where you could slot your little airships into, which is a cute little feature. It's fun. I bet it feels great when you're doing it in person. Um, but they then couldn't put a scoring, uh, you know, like scoring places on the outside of the board. So my guess is that's why they opted for this thing. I think they should have thrown another little board in there for scoring, a separate board if needed. I don't really love separate boards for that type of thing. But in this case, that would have been preferred over the stars. So that's my thought. I don't know. Be interested to hear if um, if the designers or publisher you know, chime in and, uh, you know, kind of give, give, fill us in on that decision. Uh, maybe I'll tweet at them and see if they can answer that for me, but I'm, I'm pretty interested in how that decision came about. Jen, what do you think about the stars? I think they're, um, burdensome and I don't, I would rather have a point track, but Tim's point was interesting. And I also don't like a separate board for scoring because we have done that now in one or two games and that has also felt burdensome. So darn it. I want the cute little cutouts as well as a point tracker but what i did like about the piece you know those little gears that we got to upgrade our ships they were like they were actually gears they were actually textured around the outside and then i got to put it on my board and i was like yeah so i thought that was a pretty neat piece of the, the production as well but yeah definitely a point tracker no stars and no extra board and then please keep the cute little places to put our blimps and dreadnoughts <laughs> Yeah, the player boards are cool. They definitely they have those little slots for the gears, like you were saying, Jen. I think that's pretty neat production wise. And in, yeah, there's like I don't know how many forty or something gears you can slot into those. And then there's a little starter bonus that has a little specialized cutout. So that's cool. And then to go back to the start, yeah, I'd almost rather just play with like poker chips or something. That's if you you can have individual score counters. Why not have something tactile and fun? So just leave the stars in the box and get out the poker chips or something. You haven't played Whistle Stop, have you, Adam? No, I have not. I, you know, when we were talking about this game, I pulled up Whistle Stop because I'm a moron and I got the games wrong and I was looking at it for a second. It looked pretty cute. Um, but no, I haven't played it is the short answer. Well, I'm just wondering if they, they probably wanted to use the same iconography because they, they obviously try to make this kind of a sequel in the same world. So maybe the stars were an icon for um, points in the previous game. I don't know if they use stars for actually tracking the points kind of like this or if that's, oh, you know. I had no idea they were related games until you said something just now yeah so um i i, I knew that whistle stop ex- existed and i knew that bezier had produced it so i assumed that there was a link there but i read the designer diary from scott caputo so i mentioned that luke laurie i didn't actually you know what i didn't uh, so let me just really quick correct an oversight here at the beginning at the end of my game the description i didn't say that this was designed by luke laurie and scott caputo and published by Bezier Games. So there, I've corrected that. Apologize for missing that earlier on. Anyway, so Scott Caputo put out a designer diary that kind of explained the process where him and Luke Laurie co-designed this game. And this was not originally supposed to be in the Whistle Stop world. Whistle Stop is an, a Scott Caputo design that Bezier published. But when um, they put this in front of uh, Bezier and Bezier agreed to publish it, Basically, it had a similar theme, but it wasn't in the same world. And so it was after going through a lot of playtesting and production and Bezier said, hey, we want to put this in the same world. So it, it's, it is supposed to be kind of following the same um, idea. And that's where like the whistles, you know, as the wild resource in there, I think those come directly out of whistle stop. Like I, that's kind of a like, otherwise, why would you have whistles? You know, it doesn't. That makes yeah. more sense now. Yeah, I don't see too many blimps with like whistles on them, but maybe I, I don't see too many blimps either. So I, I think we may have to play Whistle Stop because I just Googled it and there's little trains and wooden trains and they're adorable. So nice, nice. Yeah, it looks cute. It looks cute, right? And, and you know, I, I think I'll say that. I think Bezier maybe made a good decision or at least 
this game has a really adorable production. It's cute. It looks fun. Like you see it on the table and it looks like a fun production. Now, I think the naming of Whistle Mountain is a little generic. And if I didn't get into like a, if I hadn't been following the designer, as I mentioned in last week's, um, you know, games I'm excited for segment, uh, I probably would, this would not even have been on my radar, to be honest. So I think it's unfortunately a little generic from that perspective, but they did put a really cute production in here. I think it all fits really well. Now that I've opened the box, you know, like kind of looked under the hood, I think it works pretty well. Is it, do we normally talk about theme here or do we have a whole, do we have a separate segment? No, we talk, we, we, we sometimes come, well, you know, if Chris is on the show, it's the first thing he talks about in the middle of mechanisms. So, you know, we can throw it in whatever you want to. <laughs> I'm going to throw, I'm going to go, I'm going to go all Chris on everybody now and I'll get my deep baritone voice going. <laughs> and uh, I want to talk about the theme this. There's no theme here for me. What's going on? We're trying to build some scaffold up to a bridge and there's a water that's rising, but we can use our blimps to like land on the water or go next to some scaffold. So to me, the, theme it makes close to zero sense here but totally i don't even care because the game's so fun that's yeah. my that's my take on it uh what about, what about you guys yeah i'm 100 percent on right there with you like when i was reading the rule book and trying to teach what you're doing here no it doesn't make any sense at all but i don't even care it, it like i said it's it's kind of the same thing as the naming it seems generic but once you put this package together like i'm looking at you know pictures in the rule book and man it's just such a pretty you know set of components out on the board with all kinds of little stuff that looks like it's happening but it's fairly easy to understand what's going on and so yeah again so going back to the um scott caputo's design diary what he said was that he did they you know they had kind of planned out this idea it was a little bit of a darker idea that you're building up these engines and it's causing global warming or you know global catastrophe so that was kind of an early element of their design wow bezier pulled it back and said hey let's bring it a little cuter so you know we're not we're not we're not causing flood you know we're not causing the global warming in the end of the world instead we're melting some of the snow caps in the colorado mountains as we're building up this thing so you know beyond that i don't you know i don't know but then the workers like fall down and die and that's okay like that's, <laughs> that's right drowning humans no big deal oh my goodness yep. not sure what to say about that <laughs> Well, yeah, it it all works as a package, but agreed, there's not a whole lot of uh, sense in the in the general theming. Yeah. Okay, all right, sounds good. Well, let's talk about uh, moments in the game today. Why don't I start with this one because I feel like I experienced a really cool moment in this game. Uh, and let me just tell you what this game can do. There's one worker left in the barracks, which means you know the game's going to end pretty soon. It happens to be my worker. I have three unused awards sitting in front of me and a card in my hand. And I go into my forge action, discard the card to buy a medium engine, turn over one of my, or do one of my forge actions to build the medium engine after I flipped over two of the words to place workers up in the space. Bottom line is I picked up like, what, 47 points in that final turn. It was awesome. It was such a fun set of combos that triggered all in that one turn. And that that wasn't even a turn where you're hitting all the engines because those were always fun too. So this was kind of like a unexpected set of combos that happened. But man, when I saw that all set up and saw that it was going to trigger at the end of the game, so I knew you guys weren't going to have a, a chance to catch up with me. That felt so good. That was that was a that was just a cool like, wow, look at all this stuff that came together and I'm able to kind of assemble it at the right time and you know, make it all work. And if one of you guys had done a forge before I got to my turn and kind of blocked the space I was going to build in, it could have made a difference, but it just, it all worked out perfectly. So bam, it was fun. It was, it was a fun way to end the game for me. Anyway, uh, what about you, Jen? Any fun, uh, interesting moments that you had in this game tonight? It doesn't have to be fun moments. Any, any moments that stood out to you? I think it's realizing that it's an exponential game. Like the pace of the game is exponential. The first couple rounds were a bit slow and you're like, all right, we're doing this and everyone's making their decisions. We're all talking about it. And it was a little collaborative this time around, which was appreciated because some of us got certain pieces and some of us didn't. And we just were there to figure it out and um, enjoy ourselves and get to the end of the game. I think that um, when the, the machine started getting on the scaffolding, then realizing that you were triggering this one and you were triggering the adjacent one and you could you could also collect the resources on the outside, things were going really, really fast. It made it much more engaging in that sense. And so um, I enjoyed it. And that's you kind of have two different modes of play. You have like, maybe we need to figure out, maybe we're going to have some house rules, right? It's going to be like, here's the express route, like we have in space space, right? That you still haven't taught us yet, where, you know, you can kind of get past those first 10 rounds where nothing really happens. 
in order to get to the good stuff. But it picks up quickly, right? Yeah. So yesterday, um, we I pulled this up on Tabletopia just to just kind of check out the experience, make sure I understood the rules. And Jen and I played through a few rounds of it. And we got through maybe two forge actions. So you can say like six turns each. And I got done with that. And I was like, I don't think this game is for me. I don't think it's got enough depth to it. I don't think it's interesting enough. I don't think enough is going to happen. So that was my feeling after the first six turns. Today, after you know, we got past that first six turns, and probably by the time we got to about the ninth turn or about the, the third forge action, I was like, holy crap, I think this game is really cool. Like the, it, it changed everything that could happen. And now understanding that, think about the earlier decisions I think are going to be more interesting, setting yourself up trying to be the first one to grab an engine so that you can be the first one to forge it in the right space and getting your workers put out there. So I actually think the early game, even though it starts a little slow, will get more interesting after knowing the game a little bit and after understanding what those early decisions are going to do for you. But in any case, it didn't last too long. So I, yeah, that was, that was cool to see. It was, uh, it was pretty neat to see that develop. Right. This game kind of explodes like the Hindenburg starts <laughs> off so slow and then you get going and going and it builds and builds and builds. The moment of the game for me had to be, you know, until Tim blew up for 50 points in the game, which I still want to talk about more. I had my little hot air balloon. I could go to, uh, I had a little special power where it could activate a machine twice, any adjacent machines twice that it was next to. So I got to go put it in one little spot, I think next to three machines. I got all kinds of resources, got to move a couple of my little wooden dudes out onto the board. They're, I want to say workers, not really your workers. They're just your little wooden point scorer guys that might fall into the whirlpool and trown. So I got to do a bunch of stuff and I thought that was rad, you know, and this is just on a first play. And then seeing Tim catch on by that last, you know, the two, three turns left to go catch on and just be like, oh man, I could combo this, 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 and this and rack up so many points in one turn. That's fun to see. And it gives me that sense of wanting to play again. Like, oh man, I want to do that. You know, I want to get 40 points in one turn and I want to do that like three turns in a row. Cause I think it might be, I think it's very possible in this game to have some big, big rounds at the end of the game. Yeah, which makes it even more forgivable that you have to track all those freaking points with little tiny star tokens. Like, come on. I mean, I thought if, we, if we're playing up to 30 points, then sure, let's count them with star tokens. But 150 points. If the star tokens were metal and felt good in our hands, do you think we would feel differently about this? If they were like gears or something or a little like, I don't know, a little air related to airships or something. I don't know. I guess there's no theme in this game. So, yeah, as long as they were just metal something, that'd be cool. No doubt in my mind that there will be upgraded components available for it to replace the cardboard chits for the star token. So I guess we'll probably get the chance to try it out at some point. I do want to point out that for the uh, production, you you do have to pay for it a little bit. You know what? It's not going for too much. About 50 bucks is what you can find it for. So that's reasonable, I think, for for what you get out of this game. Yeah. I mean, for a new release, um, Euro, uh, I, I think that's a totally fine value. I'd say it's, I'd say it's listed that MSRP must be 69 95 because that's what it's going for on Amazon right now. But if you're finding it for like 50 something bucks online, I think that's pretty solid. Yeah. 50 bucks or under just on across a few of the bigger name um, online board yeah, game stores. Yeah. So yeah, that MSRP is a little high. I don't know. I, I probably, you know, knowing the gameplay that's in here and there's a lot of components and decent. I don't, I don't think it's terrible. I agree. It's more of a 50 price point uh, game to me. So not, not too bad. Cool. Um, all right. Well, let's jump in to our final question on this game. And that is, would you request to play it again? So um, I'll just get mine out of the way really quickly. I mentioned a couple times during this conversation that I really liked it, that I'm tempted to buy it now after playing it online one time. So uh, I definitely see this having some gameplay coming up. Um, I could see this being one that I request on the next game night where it's my choice to play a game. I, I had a really fun time with it. I think there's a lot to explore with it as well. So yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I would uh, I'd love to give it a shot. What about you, Adam, I talked about it a little bit. This game left me with that sense of wanting to play again, having getting, you know, you just got a little taste, a little appetizer. This game gave me a hint of what it has to offer. And I want to explore the full spectrum of what it has to offer. So I'm looking forward to playing it again very much. What about you, Jen? Yeah, I think it has a lot of replayability. I think that the puzzle that's going on on that board is really impressive. And I'd like to play with it in all different ways. And so I think that um, it would allow, it would it would not be a boring game to play again. And I can imagine playing it with the same people over and over again, which is kind of what's going on. Yay, pandemic right now. And it's still being awesome. 
right? And, you know, bringing new people into the fold. But I, I don't know if this is a game kind of like Castles of Burgundy where you can predict what someone's going to do. So I would be curious to play it a couple times and see like, oh, I'm playing with Adam. I know what he's going to do. Or if it's just kind of, you never, you never know what's going to happen. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think that will uh, be interesting to watch over a few plays as well. Um, because like how much does your starting player power dictate what you're doing? I, I wonder, would our gameplay have been a lot different this time? I think Adams would have for sure. I definitely took advantage of mine in a couple of spaces as well. So I think your starting player power, I think the technologies you grab earlier, I think you just what's available to you on the worker placement spots and, and the spots and the resources that you manage to gather at certain times really going to change things up. So yeah, it'd be interesting to see whether it's super tactical and just kind of making decisions the best you can at the time or whether you can kind of find a strategy that works for you and the way you, you want to play with it. But you just re- you did remind me of one more thing I wanted to mention for sure in this review, because again, I, I don't know if other people feel this way, but when I read about it, I was a little worried that I would not enjoy the part of where you're building this thing together. So, you know, when you put scaffolding out or when you put machines out on the board, usually someone else is going to get the opportunity to use those things before you do. Um, because you're placing those things and then now they get to move. And that means that maybe you've put some scaffolding out, they can put a machine up first, or you've put a machine up so they can activate it first. I've played some other games. And the one that comes the most to mind when I was reading the rules on this is Imahotep, uh, which is a game where there's a lot of, I won't go get too much into the rules description, but basically you're going to do some stuff, but the decisions that you make don't have a lot of impact on your game because you kind of don't have control of how those proceed. And I was afraid that this was going to do the same thing to me. And it didn't at all because the opportunity of setting an engine up, yeah, other people get to use it, but you also get to optimize where you place that engine and get the most points for where you place the scaffolding, get the most points for the workers that you've activated. You get a lot of good decisions to make when you're building that thing and you get a lot of immediate benefit for it when you're building that thing that it doesn't even matter if someone else gets to use it. So I was really worried that I would play this and feel like I don't feel like I have enough agency here. I'm doing something and it doesn't matter what I do for me because everyone else is good to get to take advantage of it. And it did not feel that way at all for me on this first play. So if anyone else is worried about that, maybe that's only a me thing, but it, it really was not a problem. I'm glad. I'm really glad you brought that up, Tim. That's this type of game where the player interaction piece is high. You're kind of you're trying to predict where other people are going to put down their machines. You can see what machine they're buying. You put your little dudes in a square where you think they're going to place their machine or block them out of where you want, you know, you can kind of force them into areas you want them to play. This is one of my favorite kind of games, kind of like a game like Soul, which we played once. It was kind of all right for our group, but I like that kind of aspect where you're using other people's actions or other people's mm-hmm. buildings that they put out there and you have to use them if you want to score well and do do well in this game so i really like that the interaction piece is high it's solid and it's interesting it's not you know it's not so straightforward yeah and i i'll end this conversation right after this comment but i just soul is a great example of a game that i did not enjoy at all and i think it was a big part of it was that piece of it it was on one play but i felt like i would do an action and then you guys would take advantage of it and to me i don't know something about that just hasn't worked for me in the past it was not a problem in this game so All right, I think that'll wrap up our conversation on Whistle Mountain, and we'll talk about things that we're excited about in gaming this week right after this. All right, so is there anything that you guys are excited about in gaming this week? Let's start with you, Jen. Anything that you're looking forward to this week in the world of board gaming? You know, I have a busy week this week with work and other things, and so I hadn't really thought about it. But after playing this game, I kind of want to try Whistle Stop just to see, you know, what it is. After looking up the pieces online and and knowing that we enjoyed this, I'd be curious to see what the game that came before this, even if they aren't directly related, feels like in my brain. Yeah, I've heard good things about it too. So I would uh, I would love to play it. Uh, I don't know if we'll maybe we can try it on Tabletopia, but maybe I'll check to see if we can pick it up in person and bust out a game or two, although I'm kind of tempted just to pick up Whistle Mountain and play that some more because I really like that. So, But that's cool. All right, right on. Well, there you go, Scott Caputo. You just uh, sold us another game by letting us play this one on on uh, Tabletopia. What about you, Adam? Anything that you're particularly excited about? I'm going to piggyback on what Jin said, Table or uh, Whistle Stop. 
look cool. When I pulled up the rules accidentally, I was browsing through that and I was like, this looks like a train game. I don't know where's the blimps and stuff. So the pieces look cute and, you know, just from a production standpoint, it looks cool. So I'd be, I'd be interested to try it as well, but I am excited. So I'm in a little discord group. Dad's on a map. They're having a virtual convention this weekend. So I have, I don't know, 13 games I'm interested in and maybe I'll get to play eight or nine of those. We'll see. So big weekend of online gaming coming up for me Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I am looking forward to that. It should be fun. That sounds awesome. Any you want to name, throw out a couple that you're particularly excited about? Yeah, so Dune is one of them. Soul is going to be one of them. Uh, Inish, I got on there. Tried to push for Eclipse. Nobody wanted to do that. Organism, that's a new game by the same guy who did Soul. 1841, it's a genre of train game that's fairly complex. Some little cube rail games are going to be fun. The Expanse board game. Uh, so those are just a few that are out there we're going to play. I've, I would like to try The Expanse. I, I've heard fun things about it, and Jeff Engelstein designed it. And um, I've heard it compared to Twilight struggle quite a bit. But to me, it seems like a more fun and more interesting experience than a game like Twilight Struggle, which is just not you know not a theme that really grabs me. I agree. Twilight Struggle wasn't really for me, but it's a, like a four-player Twilight Struggle light, I guess. You're making interesting decisions each time. You're kind of dueling back and forth between the four of you for control over the you know three bands of the solar system. And uh, there's a couple point scoring opportunities. It's fun. It's really fun. Nice, nice, awesome. Uh, I'll just mention one really quick thing. So I've, I've uh, there's a game that I've been having a lot of fun with lately called The Crew Quest for Planet Nine, I think. And it's a little cooperative trick taking game, which. Um, I picked up, it was the, I think it was a Spiel des Jahres winner this year, but I had a chance to play it a few times with a couple different groups. I really loved it. So far, it hasn't really stuck with the groups I've played with, unfortunately. So I would like to be playing it a little bit more than I've had a chance to. But I just saw that Cosmos, which publishes that game, released a teaser for the German edition of The Crew. I think it's called Deep Sea Adventures or something like that. They, they just had the German spell, um, the German translation at this point. But it looks like they're going to basically do a follow-up to the crew in a deep sea setting. And um, I'm really excited. I mean, if they just do the exact same mechanisms as the crew, uh, you know, it might not be that interesting. But I have a feeling they'll throw in a couple of twists and change some things around. And I just loved what the crew did as far as turning what is a very traditional trick-taking game, kind of turning it on its head and putting t- little twists and tricks in that you have to struggle over every uh, round. Um, and the idea that you're doing it cooperatively was a lot more fun than I expected because I'm not usually a big fan of co-ops. Um, but in this case, it, it worked really well in a little light trick-taking game that everyone's cheering about when you're successful on a mission and booing about when you fail because somebody made a dumb mistake with the card that they throw out there. So looking for uh, more of that crew content, I just got to find the right uh, group to play it with. So uh, looking forward to that. All right. Well, I think that will wrap us up this week. Again, join the conversation. If you'd like to find us online, we'd love to hear from you until next week. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks for having me.